which if you've got a church Bible, you should find on page 1199, I think. Titus chapter 3. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility towards all men. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable to everyone. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. As soon as I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at, at Nicopolis because I have decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Do take your seats. And if you could pick up your Bibles and open them again to Titus chapter 3, that would be really, really good. I'm going to pray for us as we turn our attention to that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for that reminder that we've just sung about the coming of the Lord Jesus, born to save us, come to change our entire lives, and we thank you so much for him. We pray that now as we turn our attention to this part of your word, you would be teaching us, encouraging us, urging us on as we follow him. And we ask this in his name. Amen. I wonder if anybody else's parents used to say this when they dropped you off somewhere. Remember to be good. Did you ever say that? Remember to be good. Don't forget to be good. Don't forget to be good. Maybe that was just something that uh, my mum said. Maybe I needed a particular <laughs> reminder. You go around to play at a friend's house. You just have, remember to be good. Or you're heading out for a bike ride with neighbours. Remember to be good. If I might forget for a moment and go on some kind of crime spree. It's a good job you reminded me, <laughs> otherwise I was going to be completely evil and terrible. 
Well, it sounds like a silly thing in a way when you're a child, but it is good advice, isn't it? We ought to be good. We ought to be good. We ought to remember to be good. And we do need reminding of that. And chapter 3 of Titus begins just like that. Titus is told to remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, uh, and lots more besides. Titus is told part of his job is to say, remember to be good. And if you remember, Titus had been left on the island of Crete. He was there to help sort out the churches there, to appoint some good leaders, to stop some bad teachers, and to keep on insisting that God's grace leads us to godliness. And this letter from the Apostle Paul is encouraging Titus to do that, to be reminding them of that, reminding them of the implications of the gospel. There were plenty of people in Crete saying it didn't matter how you lived. There's no need to be good. And as sinful people, we often want that to be true, don't we? We conveniently forget what the Bible teaches about goodness. We need people like Titus. We need one another to keep saying to us, remember, remember to be good. And this morning, I pray, will be that kind of reminder to us. As we've seen throughout this letter, being good doesn't just happen. We are naturally not good. We are naturally bad. And we'll only be good when we actually remember how God has been good to us. God has been so, so good to us. And it's only that that will actually change us and make us so that we are good. We see that in verse, from verse 3. We're told to be good because at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us. God has been so good to us, hasn't he? So good to us. And that passage, it tells our story. It tells it with all of the gory details and all of the glorious stuff as well. The story of how God took no good sinners like us, picked us up, saved us, and turned us around for a whole new life. This is the story of how God has been good to us. And it starts with what we used to be like, a really sad Sorry, state of affairs. Verse 3 says that we were foolish. Doesn't mean we were stupid necessarily. As if the problem is just intellectual. No, it means being unwise. We were messing around with something very, very dangerous, which is what sin is. It's not just ignorance. Verse 3 says it's disobedience. We would not do what God wanted us to do no matter how good he was to us. And that's because we were deceived. We'd been led astray. We'd been duped. We believed the lie that God was mean, that God didn't want the best for us, that God wanted to make our life worse and it would be better for us if we just went and did our own thing. We thought we were having fun, but we were actually slaves. It says enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. 
Our sin was like the cheese on the mousetrap, if you like. For a brief moment, it tastes so good, and then we're slaves. We're caught. We can't stop. And worst of all, we were slaves alone. It says being hated and hating one another. Behind all the smiles, we were in it for ourselves. We were using our friends. We were seething at our enemies. And they were the same with us. You go to a school playground, this is what you will see. And a lot of workplaces too. And a lot of homes. This is sin, isn't it? Putting ourselves first. And that puts us on a collision course with everybody else. Because if I'm trying to be first and you're trying to be first, we're going to butt heads, aren't we? Of course we're going to be hating and being hated. It's a big competition. Who's going to be God? And that's why most of all it puts us on a collision course with God. The only one who actually is. And we're told this is what we were like. You might not look at that and go, oh boy, yeah, that was me. But we're told that is what we were like once upon a time. Tangled up in hatred and slavery and sin. We were in a complete mess. But, but, verse 4 is so good, isn't it? But, when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us. God has been so good to us, hasn't he? This is one of the reasons we celebrate Christmas, isn't it? This is when we're celebrating the moment when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, when he came, when he came into history. How good he's been to us that he didn't leave us in our misery. That he didn't punish us as we deserved. Instead, he was kind. He loved us. He saved us. Hallelujah. Verse 5 makes it crystal clear why he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, in case there are any doubt, but because of his mercy. We weren't saved because of how nice we were. God didn't look at us and see potential. He saw us as his deliberate enemies. And he still loved us. He still loved us. That is all over these verses, isn't it? Verse 4 talks about his kindness, his love. Verse 5 talks about his mercy. Verse 7, grace. All of these things have nothing to do with us, are they? They're entirely because God is good. God has been good to us. Don't forget that. He should destroy me. But he loves me. And so he saves me. Now you might be here this morning not a Christian. And and we're so glad you're here if you are. Not least because you get to hear this amazing news that people who've got stuck, enslaved and trapped in the worst of sins can be set free. That people who have done the most terrible of things can be saved. You have not come into this place today full of good people. We were no better than anybody, sometimes worse. But despite ourselves, right in the middle of our rebellion and our sin, God loved us. God was kind to us. 
God rescued us. And he can do the same for you. Just put your trust in Jesus today. Turn away from those sins and you can be forgiven. Would you do that today? We would love to talk to you more about that if you want to find out more. Because there is so much to discover about how good God has been to us. And this isn't even finished yet. Have a look from verse 7. It talks about him justifying us by his grace. That means that right now we receive the not guilty verdict. We get that verdict now, ahead of judgment day, not guilty. Even though we just read we were guilty. We were terribly, terribly guilty. But Jesus has been judged in our place so we can be declared innocent. It's fantastic. And then it says, having had that happen, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs. We might become heirs. That's, like, that's about sort of being adopted in. So that we get all the benefits of being God's children. It's like Elon Musk, the richest man in the world, saying, I'm going to leave everything to you in my, in my will. I'm going to leave it all to you. Except it isn't small change, like the £170 billion pounds that Elon Musk has. It's much, much more than that. We are heirs of eternal life. And we have that hope now. So it isn't just we don't go to hell. We've got the certain hope of living with God forever in perfection. God has been so good to us, hasn't he? He's been so good to us. And that alone would give us reason to be good, wouldn't it? To, to live our lives for the one who died for us and gave us all of that. But if we only ever told our story in terms of things like being saved, being justified, being forgiven, then maybe, maybe we could get away with thinking it doesn't matter how we live afterwards. Maybe. Somebody lets you off a punishment. Somebody promises you something good. You don't always then go on and follow them for the rest of your life, do you? And that's why Jesus has done more than that. He's more than just save us in a way that makes us want to change, although he does. He has changed us. He has actually done something to us to change us. Have a look from halfway through verse 5. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour. We've got three images packed in there. Washing. So it isn't just that the slate is wiped clean. We are. We are cleaned up. We are not the same as we were. Rebirth. Starting again. Born again to live a brand new life. Renewal. An entirely new start. And an ongoing renewal. An ongoing process of change. The Holy Spirit takes us when we were dirty and dead and downtrodden and makes us clean. Makes us alive. Makes us transformed. God has been, continues to be so good to us in changing us. Like a caterpillar into a butterfly. Like the Lord Jesus on Easter morning, risen from the dead. That is what he's done for us. It is absolutely breathtaking mercy 
that God's anger is poured out on Jesus so that his Holy Spirit can be poured out on us. Now, if you trust in Jesus, that is your story. That's you. That is what you were. That is what you are. That is what you will be. It is an amazing story of mercy shown to people like us. God has been good to us. And so, be devoted to doing good. Because of that, be devoted to doing good. That's the logic of the passage. Because God's been good to us, we should do good. We should be devoted to that. And verse 8 makes that connection. Looking back on those things he's just said, he says, this is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things, these things about what he's done for us, so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. Titus. You need to emphasize how good God has been to us so that we will all be devoted to doing good as well. And that's what we've seen throughout the letter, isn't it? That God's grace leads us to godliness. The more we remember how good God has been, the more we will change. The more we'll be devoted to that. We're seeing a lot of devoted people at the minute. It's not just the fans at the World Cup, but the World Cup is not just a bunch of blokes having a kickabout. These are people who have committed their lives from a very early age to training every day, to working on it, to improving, to push themselves, to make sacrifices. These are children being nurtured by their parents and by coaches until they're the best in the world. And that's this idea here of being devoted to something being committed to it. Uh, Grace is a trainer, isn't it? We saw that last time, how it teaches us to say no to ungodliness, trains us, drives us on for growth. There's discipline there. That's what it's saying, be devoted to it. In terms of godliness, in terms of doing good, are we living like people in training? Are we seeing growth in our godliness? Are we even aiming for it? Because we aren't just told to be good. We aren't just told to be devoted. We're told, be careful to devote yourselves to doing what is good. So we need a plan, don't we? Let's, let's clear our diaries a bit to make sure there's time to do good when it's needed. When, as, as urgent needs come up, we're ready and able to do it. Let's think of sin in our lives that has just been plaguing us for such a long time and actually get to work on it. Read up on it. Talk to people about it. Pray specifically about it. Have that devotedness to say, I'm going to put this to death. I'm going to work hard on this. And if you're not sure where to start, let's look at verse 1 and 2. Having targeted various different groups last week, if you remember, speaking to older men, younger men, da 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 He's now addressing everybody. Verse 1 and 2. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peace, peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle towards everyone. There's plenty in there to be getting on with, isn't there? In the verse just before this, at the end of chapter 2, Titus has been told to encourage and rebuke with all authority. So when in the next verse it says, remind people to be submitting to authorities, that no doubt starts with, submitting to that authority within the church. 
listening to, following those elders that we were told about in chapter 1, the people who are going to teach you the right stuff. But it doesn't end there. This is authorities in general, most likely civil government, those in charge, those people who are very hard to respect often. But remember our story. That's what we're being told. Remember, we were out of control, weren't we? We were out of control until God's grace brought us back under his loving authority. And he calls us now to stop kicking against it whenever anyone tells us what to do. We so often do that. Anybody dares to tell me to do something I wasn't already planning to do. We just click against it. We say, no, that's not what we're like anymore. That's not what we're like anymore. To be obedient. To be obedient to those authorities. As long as being obedient to them doesn't lead us to be disobedient to God. Just those little things keeping the speed limit. Paying our taxes, obeying the law. They're such small things, really. But they are small ways of being ready to do whatever is good. Those small ways of telling that story. Say, I'm not an out-of-control person anymore. I don't like paying that. I don't like doing that. But at the end of the day, I'm not in charge of the universe anymore. I never really was. <laughs> but I just now I know I'm not. So I'm going to live under other people's authority. And that's fine. Because I'm not the boss. We don't just stumble into this. We need to be ready for it. We need to seek it out. We need to have our eyes open for needs that we can meet, for people that we can serve, for crooked things we can straighten out. Verse 2 focuses on our relationships, how we treat other people, how we talk to them, how we talk about them. It's the opposite of being hated and hating one another, isn't it? Instead, slander no one slander no one it's the old thing of if you haven't got anything nice to say don't say anything those snipey little comments putting people down speaking ill of those who aren't there to defend themselves we shouldn't talk like that we shouldn't talk like that it just leads to conflict doesn't it when instead we're supposed to be peaceable considerate considerate of other people's weaknesses considerate of everything else other people have going on. Obviously, people need to be considerate of me if they knew what I was going through, but I don't need to be considerate of them. They should know better. No, we're considerate with one another. We're not demanding. We're not giving off the air of being constantly annoyed and disappointed. We're looking for the best in people. We're trying not to be offended. We're willing to overlook an insult, whether an actual insult or just an imagined insult. Christians should be peaceable. We should be peacemakers. We're not starting fires. We're not stirring things up. So it's worth asking us, when something happens, are we calm? Or are we spoiling for a fight? When somebody says something that we don't like, are we quick to go, well, fine then, and defend? Or are we looking to de-escalate it? This is a real challenge, isn't it? Always be gentle towards everyone. Always for everyone. But if you knew my children, but if you'd seen those people at work, or my brother or my neighbour or that idiot in front of us in the traffic, always be gentle with everyone. Which is such a challenge. Is that your last 24 hours, do you think? 
even when we need to disagree with people, or as Titus is going to do, rebuke certain people. In the heat of the moment with those things, things slip out, don't we? Don't they? They, they slip out, and then we excuse ourselves, because I, I was a bit flustered, I was taken by surprise. I, I lashed out without thinking, but that's not really me. But if that is our reaction when something just happens, that makes it worse, doesn't it? C.S. Lewis puts it like this. Surely what a man does when he's taken off his guard is the best evidence for what sort of a man he is. If there are rats in a cellar, you're most likely to see them if you go in very suddenly. But the suddenness does not create the rats. It only prevents them from hiding. Apparently, the rats of resentment and vindictiveness are always there in the cellar of my soul. That's a challenge, isn't it? That when something suddenly rushes in on us, it's like we've stuck the light on in the cellar and suddenly the rats come scurrying around. We can't go, oh, I'm terribly sorry. I must have, I don't know what that was about. No, that was revealing something that we need to change. I have got rats in my soul, apparently. I really, really need Jesus. I really, really need the Holy Spirit's work in my life. Because if all we had was remember to be good, well, forget it. We can't just do that. The only way we're going to be good is remembering that God has been good to us. That whatever sins we're thinking of, he can help us. We can stop criticising people all the time. Because the gospel humbles us. We can be peacemakers. Because Jesus has made peace with us. We can get our temper under control. Because God is no longer angry with us. We can love the unlovely. Because we've been loved. We absolutely can change Because God is at work changing us. And so we need to be devoted to doing good. Are we ready to do that? Are we ready to say, actually, I'm going to come out from this place devoted to doing what is good? Now, since that goodness is only going to come out of the gospel, we also, alongside that, need to be devoted to good teaching. That's how the letter ends. It's the good news that's going to lead to good works. And so we've got to be devoted to that good teaching. If you remember uh, in in Crete, they had a lot of bad teachers, a lot of people excusing sinful behavior. A lot of people saying, well, when in Crete, do as the Cretans do, which would apparently be an evil brute and all the rest of it. Titus needs to shut those people up and bring in good leaders who teach the truth. So as the letter finishes, it gets very, very practical. Not just being devoted to good teaching in theory, but working that out in practice. So first of all, we're told things to avoid, verse 9. Avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. Stay off Twitter, in other words. No, it's not as simple as that, is it? It's not quite as simple as that. But it is saying just watch out for that just desire for just a fight, for an argument, for slinging things. Watch out for teaching which focuses on controversial things all the time. For preachers, for teachers, for small group leaders, for writers of books who always seem to be focusing on very, very minor things. 
splitting hairs over stuff that's not central. Even though they will obviously tell you, no, 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 this is actually very, very, very important. It's not, though, is it? Getting bogged down in little quarrels and arguments and falling out all the time, it doesn't help anybody. It's distracting from the gospel. It's destructive. Don't listen to it. Don't read it. Don't watch it. Don't go to it. Avoid it like the plague. Paul tells Titus what to do with people who are like that. Verse 10 and 11, warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. It's kind of a, a three strikes and you're out policy, isn't it? It's saying still be gentle, still be peaceable, but also be clear that church leaders need to be able to warn people and urge people away from this sort of divisiveness, away from unprofitable nonsense. But if somebody ignores those repeated warnings, it isn't safe for them. It isn't safe for anybody else if they're allowed to just carry on doing that. It talks about being warped. That's a word from building. It refers to a wall or a house that is so damaged, so out of shape, that it's no longer safe. We might actually say that that sort of building is condemned. It's a condemned building because it's so ruined that it's going to be difficult, if not impossible, to repair. Now, we want to rebuild people. We don't want to go knocking down perfectly good buildings. But sometimes, this is saying, some people are so stubbornly set in their wrong teaching that is not about the grace of God that it might take some drastic action for them to come to their senses and for other people to see that's not it. Whatever that is, it's not it. And this is part of being devoted to good teaching. It means opposing bad teaching when it comes about. And on the flip side of that, we need to support the good and the book ends, doesn't it, with a, with a list of ministry partners to get behind. The verse 12 talks about how uh, Titus, he'll be sending two guys. It's going to be either Artemis or Tychicus or Tychicus or whatever you want to call him. They're going to come. They're going to take over from him. And when they come, Titus should go meet up with Paul. It's probably because they're planning to go to Rome later the following year. But these aren't the only ministry comings and goings. Verse 13 talks about Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos. They're probably the ones who delivered the letter. They've come with the letter. They're now in Crete. They're planning to move on somewhere else as missionaries. They want to spread the gospel further. Okay, church, you're devoted to good teaching. Support these guys then. This is an opportunity for you to do something good. These people have come in with a letter. They're going somewhere else with the gospel. Get behind them 100%. Verse 13 and 14, do everything you can to help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. There's a really practical way to be devoted to doing good, isn't it? There are some gospel workers. They need their daily necessities provided for. They're traveling on to tell people about Jesus. So give them what they need. You want people to hear about Jesus, don't you? What a practical way to do good. And genuinely, completely by coincidence, this week, we've got a collection for Steve Jones and his gospel work around Shropshire. 
That would be a great way, wouldn't it, for us to say, yeah, we are behind. Good teaching. We want to see the gospel spread. Let's do everything we can practically to help him on his way, to see that he's got everything he needs. He hasn't asked me to say that, by the way. He's probably turning red now. But it's the thing, that not just Steve, all our other mission partners as well. And giving to support the work here in Wem as well. Being devoted to good teaching for the gospel that's going to change people's lives is more than just saying, oh, I enjoy good sermons. It means we practically support the work of those good teachers. We practically avoid the bad. So are we devoted to good teaching? Are we devoted to doing good? Because that's what we've been saved for. That's what we've been saved for. It all flows out of how good God has been to us. And so if you remember nothing else from this series we've had over the last three weeks, remember it's this. Grace leads to godliness. God's goodness to us that we don't deserve, that completely changes our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've been so, so good to us.